0: In 2014, when the war started, the entire world crashed. The response of world community, the response of Russian community, you were indifferent, and that was probably the most hard thing to accept.
1: This is Voices of Ukraine, a podcast from the Harriman Institute at Columbia University about lives upended by Russia's war. I'm Masha Udensova-Brenner, and I'm excited to welcome you to Season 2, which will air monthly and will look back at lives upended by Russia's initial war in Ukraine, launched back in 2014, a war the world had largely forgotten until Russia's invasion last February. The voice you just heard is Katya shiraga Davidenko, an archivist at Columbia University's rare book and manuscript library. I'm from
0: Kiev. After high school, I studied Russian language and literature in Estonia in Tartu University. And in 1992, I moved to the United States.
1: I first met Katya last summer when she gave a tour of an exhibit on modern Ukrainian history that she helped put together at the library in response to Russia's full-scale invasion. Since 2014, Katya has dedicated all her free time to helping Ukrainians fight Russia's aggression. But she hasn't lived in Ukraine since she immigrated to the US in 92. Today, you'll hear Katya's story, which starts in Kyiv, during the 1960s. You're Jewish from Kiev. Can you talk a little bit about what language you spoke growing up and if you thought much about your national identity, your ethnic identity? As a
0: child, as long as I remember myself, I knew that I'm Jewish. And not because my parents were Traditional, they did not practice traditional Judaism. They did not practice at all. They were too scared.
1: They were too scared because Soviet authorities encouraged atheism. And even Russia's traditional religion, Orthodox Christianity, was frowned upon. Practicing Judaism, which was highly stigmatized, was unthinkable.
0: My identity
1: was pushed
0: at me by outsiders by other people. They called me names. Me, my parents, my brother. That's why I always knew that I'm a Jew. I did not realize as a child what the difference is, but I always knew that.
1: And how did people know you were Jewish? By my appearance.
0: (laughs) That's first of all. Second of all, in the passports, in Soviet passports, there was a so-called fifth line where my Jewish identity was written down.
1: The fifth line in the Soviet passport wasn't just for Jews. All ethnicities were indicated there. While the Kremlin tried, on the one hand, to erase national identities and create a mirage of unity between the various ethnic groups that made up the Soviet Union, it also sowed divisions by instituting quotas and official policies of ethnic discrimination. For Katya, this left a mark. It did not
0: define me, but it shaped me. I learned how to fight physically pretty early. I had to establish the status, so if you call me the name, your nose will be bleeding. So that was my response.
1: At home, Katya's family spoke Russian, but she attended a Ukrainian language school. My parents did not mind to
0: place me and my brother first to Ukrainian kindergarten. And then to Ukrainian school, because it was just nearby. It was the closest to home.
1: Why did you use that word, mind? What was the attitude toward Ukrainian language schools at the time you were growing up? There was not a lot of them. And majority of people, including Ukrainians,
0: many of them, is to send kids to Russian school. Because that was a road to the future. So my first written language was Ukrainian. And later on, when we moved to another neighborhood, I had to start attending Russian school. I was the only Jew in that class. And I was the only one knowing Ukrainian language.
1: Katya says she didn't think too much at the time about the marginalization of all things Ukrainian. But it was always in the background. The general attitude towards Ukrainian language... Why to learn it?
0: Why to know it? It was not respect at all.
1: Soviet authorities stamped out expressions of Ukrainian culture, which they considered to be a sign of Ukrainian nationalism. Katya remembers the time a neighbor knocked on their door because one of her sons had been expelled from Kew State University. He'd been wearing a vyshevanka, a traditional Ukrainian embroidered shirt, and partaking in a group reading of Ukrainian poetry near a statue of Ukrainian national poet Taras Shevchenko. The expulsion ruined his prospects, and Katya's neighbor was desperate. She said, I don't know what to do. And she
0: came to my father because he was a supervisor of one of the department in the manufacture plant.
1: She asked if Katya's father could help her son find a job.
0: Which my father did.
1: Not only that, but after supervising him at the manufacturing plant for two years, Katya's dad also wrote their neighbor's son a recommendation to get into another university.
0: My dad took a risk. He did not realize it. It was just helping a person. I understand it was a risk, and I'm so proud of him even today. I never asked my father about that when I grew up,
1: and I regret it. What what sort of rhetoric was there around the subject of Ukrainian nationalism coming from the top at that time?
0: I would not say that I thought about that at that point. But the portrait was that all of them
1: anti And you mentioned that you experienced a lot of discrimination as a Jewish person growing up. I guess I'm interested in this portrayal Ukrainian nationalists as anti-Semites, but the Soviet government was extremely anti-Semitic and had quotas for people getting into universities, getting jobs, all sorts of things. People who bullied me, they they did not speak Ukrainian.
0: (laughs) They spoke Russian. They did not identify themselves as Ukrainians. So, of course, it was Soviet. I had a very harsh physical response to all of that pretty early in my life.
1: And did that play a role in your decision to emigrate?
0: No. Everybody around with Jewish origins, they were talking about immigrating, cleaving, never in our family, ever. Not my parents, not myself.
1: How did you end up in the US? My daughter was born in
0: 1991, and then she became sick. When she was very little, and the doctor suggested to leave, because it might be because of Chernobyl. My husband, my first husband, he wanted to to go to United States.
1: And did she start feeling better once you moved here?
0: Yes. Yeah. Within a couple of months.
1: Katya and her family left Kyiv in March 1992 just a few months after the Soviet Union collapsed.
0: I was absolutely devastated because I never planned it. I never wanted it. I had my life together. I loved Kiev, and I love Kiev with all my heart.
1: When you got here, what was your reaction? I cried for 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> what made you stop crying? Uh, 9-11. On the morning of the September 11th attacks, Kata was on her way to work when the train stopped on the Manhattan Bridge right after the plane hit the first tower.
0: And next day or the day after, it was night. I was walking along the New York Public Library on 42nd and 5th. It was a little rainy, very small drops, but asphalt was wet. And I saw the city under my feet, reflecting. And I stopped and started screaming and crying. My heart just jumped to my throat and then dropped back.
1: And that's when it dawned just how much she actually loved New York a city that until that moment had always felt cold and distant, but suddenly seemed vulnerable, wounded, humbled.
0: At that point, I realized that all this size and all that independency, it just the outside face. And you, should know better. You know what is behind that. There is a huge heart. And so I cried because I realized that I love it, that I'm actually in love.
1: Even though she did manage to fall in love with New York, Katya never lost her connection to Ukraine. When a series of protests and civil unrest broke out there in November 2004 in response to a rigged election favoring a pro-Russian candidate, Katya paid attention.
0: Orange Revolution, I supported it with all my heart. I visited Ukraine after that. We talked a lot. People trusted and believed that it's the beginning of something bigger. My friends were involved, of course. They're very, very, very active people in Ukraine. It was very exciting see how Ukraine is dealing with democracy.
1: And did you feel yourself a part of Ukrainian society in some way during those years? When the revolution of dignity started, that's the point when I
0: realized how personal the history could be. Because kids, a couple of our friends, were among those students that were beaten. So that was the beginning of my dance.
1: Were they okay?
0: Yeah, but again, it was personal. And our first poster, mine and my husband, we wrote, don't touch and put the names of those girls who were there and went to Ukrainian consulate to protest against the action of Ukrainian authorities.
1: So was that the first protest you had ever attended? I would say yes.
0: Then we followed... The Maidan development in a live stream as everybody else. And it was, from one point of view, absolutely devastating to watch it. And the second, we were so proud.
1: After the revolution, Kata collected artifacts from her friends who'd participated for Columbia's archive. I saw some of them at that library exhibit where we first met. Can you describe some of those artifacts?
0: My friend, who is a playwright and translator, she gave me her helmet that she wore
1: on Maidan, her gas mask. Another friend, a journalist, gave her a singed scarf with Ukrainian flag colors that he'd found on Maidan And it still smelled like smoke from the revolution. They collected some leaflets, flyers, which still
0: hold that smell.
1: And how does it make you feel to smell that smell?
0: Mm. I don't analyze a lot of stuff. Probably because I don't have time for that. Since 2014. I probably would say that's how the history smells.
1: And so the revolution of dignity happened, and then it wasn't long until the annexation of Crimea. Do you remember what you were doing when you found out that that happened. I woke up
0: and we looked at the news and we found the roll of pink paper. Somehow we had it, I don't know why. And we wrote a poster saying, UN, wake up, there is a war in Ukraine.
1: Tata put on a wreath her Jewish grandmother had made her out of artificial flowers back in kindergarten and she and her husband headed out.
0: We called a taxi, and we went to UN. We did not know if anyone will be there. It's just the feeling that I can't, I can't, I have to do something.
1: But at that point, Kata assumed that with the lessons learned from World War II, the global community would respond quickly and harshly. That the UN would put Russia in its place. Fairness will be immediately restored. But then Russia vetoed the UN Security Council's resolution to protect Ukraine's territorial integrity. And the world just moved on. I started realizing
0: that it does not work. It just does not work. That was very hard. That was very hard.
1: And the first time... Russia did this was in 2008 when it invaded Georgia. And the world also didn't really respond. And I was in Georgia this summer, and a lot of Georgians were talking about that. You know, if if the world had reacted back then, maybe none of this would have happened. Do you remember your feelings back then and, and your reaction to that invasion?
0: Yes, I do. It's something that will follow me to my grave that I did not respond loud enough at that point and that it did not become my turning point as it happened in 2013. This is something I have to live with and be honest with myself about that. I am ashamed about that part of me.
1: Since that 2014 turning point, Kaita never stopped protesting. She remembers crossing the Brooklyn Bridge with a group of demonstrators holding a giant Ukrainian flag.
0: There were a lot of people, and we stopped in the middle of the bridge. There was a prayer, and at that point, standing in the middle of the Brooklyn Bridge, singing Ukrainian anthem, praying for... People of Ukraine, I did not feel it as a cognitive dissonance that I'm a Jewish woman standing here, putting my hand to my heart, singing words of the Ukrainian anthem. It was natural.
1: So would you say that's the first time you really felt Ukrainian? To a certain extent, yes,
0: like to to the fullest extent.
1: During that same period, in March 2014, Russia's Ministry of Culture invited leading cultural figures and intellectuals to sign an open letter supporting Putin's decision to annex Crimea. More than 500 people signed, famous actors, directors, conductors, writers, artists, and musicians. Katya was enraged. How could you, after all what happened to
0: russian and soviet intelligentsia how could you after all of those killed tortured disappeared cultural figures how could you write this letter
1: These signatories continued to appear publicly and perform at cultural venues all over the world. Katia, her husband, and their friends vowed to protest every single performance that came to New York.
0: I said that no matter how long it will take to protest this people. A year. Two two years. Five years, I still will be here. Of course, I did not think that it will take five years.
1: To coordinate the protests, they created a Facebook group called Signer Busters signer busters, like ghostbusters. Yes,
0: exactly. Signer
1: busters. The group spent eight years protesting in front of venues like Carnegie Hall, Lincoln Center, Brooklyn Academy of Music, and various jazz clubs.
0: We didn't miss a single performance of those who signed the letter. Rain, snow, humidity, hot weather, we were always there. Sometimes just two of us, sometimes five.
1: Since 2014, Kaita has spent all her free time protesting and collecting humanitarian aid for Ukrainian refugees. She says that for eight years straight, her apartment was constantly stockpiled with supplies on their way to Ukraine. I'm very interested in how you came into this role of volunteering. You weren't an activist before, so it's an interesting transformation. I never define myself as an activist.
0: It's like when you raise a child, when you help your neighbor, when you care about someone, do you consider it as an activism? It is absolutely natural personal response. Nothing else.
1: Activist or not, when Russia launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine last February, Katyn knew what to do. Right away, she started protesting, lobbying Congress, and organizing the shipment of supplies to the Ukrainian military.
0: I was better equipped than many other people because I had connections in Ukraine. I had a structure and an idea of what to do, and how to organize protests.
1: I wondered what all of this has been like for Katte emotionally, how, if at all, she's been able to cope.
0: All this time, I'm on an edge of tears, but I don't go full extent of crying. The same with screaming. Because if I will start, I wouldn't be able to stop.
1: Katya says she'll save the tears for later, after Ukraine's victory. For now, there are people who need to cry more than she does, and she wants to let them have that chance. Thanks so much for listening to the first episode in Season 2 of Voices of Ukraine, a podcast from the Harriman Institute at Columbia University. I'm Masha Udentzova-Brenner. This episode was written and produced by me and edited by Nathan Schiller, with feedback from Marko Andrejek. The music in this series was composed by Ivan Nebesny, who's still in Ukraine. You can learn more about him in episode 10 of the previous season. The cover art for the podcast is by Victoria tentler krilov If you're enjoying this series, please subscribe, tell your friends, and leave us a review. And if you missed season one, which tells stories of lives upended by Russia's full-scale invasion, please go back and listen. I think you'll enjoy it.